0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of More Than Maps, Finding the Why of Where. My name is Avery Cameron Laffey, and I am a junior geographer, communication studies and peace, justice, and conflict studies um, student at Davis Adolphus College in St. Peter, Minnesota. As a geographer and as a planning, as a planning student, I am interested in the development and creation of, and of accessible and inclusive cities, as well as researching historical injustice conducted by planners across the United States. This time around, we will be discussing the history, political processes, outcomes, and lasting impacts of urban renewal of the Rondo neighborhood in St. Paul, Minnesota. In this research, I will shift my focus away from the harms and trauma urban renewal placed on on the Rondo neighborhood, and instead, my research tends to investigate political infrastructure and lobbying efforts by community members and the specific statutes and acts passed by the Minnesota Highway Department and by the Minnesota Department of Transportation, as well as interference by the National Interstate Defense Highways Act and by community organizations in the Rondo and outside who used their political capital to divert I-94 away from their neighborhoods and through the Rondo neighborhood of St. Paul. Just a brief overview of the historical context of my research. In 1950, the Rondo neighborhood was contained on its west side by the Lexington Parkway, to its east by Rice Street, by Marshall Avenue to its south, and by University Ave to its north. The Rondo neighborhood was comprised of over 130 city blocks. Through the center of the Rondo, St. Anthony Ave divided Rondo into two portions, the upper and lower Rondo. The upper Rondo was comprised of more wealthy middle-class people, while the lower Rondo was more of a blue-collar neighborhood In 1950, 85% of St. Paul's African-American residents resided in the Rondo neighborhood. There were numerous businesses as well and over over 5,300 residents according to the Ramsey County Census of 1950. Up until 1960, Rondo's population was growing steadily. This was in part due to the Great Migration with many black Americans moving from the south up to northern cities like St. Paul. There are also numerous employment opportunities for people of color in the Rondo neighborhood, as well as um, before 1949, when um, racially restrictive covenants were abolished nationwide, people could find houses in Rondo regardless of their skin color. In 1956, Dwight D. Eisenhower and his administration passed the National Interstate Defense Highways Act. This was inspired after Eisenhower's military service in Europe witnessing how effectively troop mobilization could occur on the Audubon system of the highways in Germany. So, ultimately, I-94 was constructed along the previously existing St. Anthony Avenue. This road crossed the Mississippi River connecting both Minneapolis and St. Paul at their city centers. This was chosen to be one of the best routes for the potential Interstate 94 but an alternate route was also proposed along abandoned railroad tracks to the north near Lake Como. This was ultimately struck down due to the high cost of purchasing property in the Como neighborhood and the high cost of developing commercial property property in the Capitol neighborhood to the north of the St. Paul Basilica. Ultimately, construction began in 1961 and was completed in 1968. The main actor in completing and instigating construction was the Minnesota Department of Highways, or the MDH. Over 600 homes and over 300 build businesses were ultimately developed due to the MDH's efforts. Those who, were not, who would not sell their homes, specifically at extremely reduced undervalued prices, would lose their homes to systems of judicial forfeiture. Only when construction began to Twin Cities newspapers provide news of highway development to residents of affected areas. The Star Tribune and Pioneer Press reported on planning and construction, but these papers did not specifically address which neighborhoods would be impacted until the St. Anthony Road was confirmed and until bulldozers were on the ground and people were served eviction notices. Public outcry of the proposal began in 1953, after the demolition of the Webster Elementary School was announced on St. Anthony Street. In the aftermath of the announcement of the demolition of, St- of the Webster Elementary School, the Rondo St. Anthony Improvement Association was formed, led by Reverend Floyd Massey. Floyd Massey is a reverend at the Pilgrim Baptist Church in the center of the Rondo, and this organization lasted from 1953 up until 1969. Other organizations were formed in communities across the Twin Cities, including in Prospect Park and Miriam Park in St. Paul, as well as the Seward neighborhood in Minneapolis. The only successful organization came out of the Miriam Park neighborhood in St. Paul. This was due to um, the number of uh, wealthy white residents and their proximity and connection to the St. Paul Archdiocese. Many members of the Archdiocese actually resided in Miriam Park and had significant political capital and intervention within the Minnesota State Legislature. In 1959, the Minnesota Statute 161, Section 17, was created to assign special provisions to highway development. The second article actually stripped city and local municipal boards of their power to veto potential highway projects regarding interstates. Ultimately, the Minnesota State Legislature repealed the statute in 1961. The first subdivision um, sets up special provisions for um, local community organizations to um, have political influence, and have the power to veto any kind of highway system. The subdivision reads, Except for routes on the interstate system, no portion of trunk highway system lying within the corporate limits of any city, village, or borough shall be constructed, reconstructed, or improved upon, and thus the plans, therefore, shall be approved by the governing body, village, or borough before such work is commenced. Unfortunately, the statute did not apply to interstate highways, and a special exemption was made due to this type of national infrastructural project. The second second clause states, It is hereby declared that the construction of the interstate system of highways will vitally affect the future development of cities, villages, and boroughs through which these routes shall pass, and such municipalities should have an important role in the development of this highway system. The provisions of subdivision one for local approval of trunk highway plans must be modified for the interstate highway system in the light of these various considerations. Altogether, this completely stripped the power of community organizations like the Rondo St. Anthony Improvement Association to have any kind of political influence over interstate infrastructural development. Overall, That's basically the historical briefing of what occurred in the Rondo neighborhood and how Interstate 94 cut the neighborhood completely in half. Now, in my research of secondary sources, I found many interesting critiques, applications, and ultimate goals of this form of urban renewal. The first source I read through argues that urban renewal is a settler colonialist mechanism for the destruction and homogenization of true neighborhood space. In another article, researchers apply the modernist theory of of Le Corbusier on American cities, arguing the aesthetic and functionalist principles of slum clearance can be applied through methods like urban renewal and public infrastructural works projects. Another piece critical of the racial and economic implications of urban renewal in minority and low-income communities was surprisingly published early on in 1960, before, the racial implications of urban renewal were present, were present in the dominant planning ideology, invisible in American cities. I was also able to access multiple recent newspaper articles, which were published in commemoration of the in destruction of the Rondo neighborhood. These articles relate to modern applications and solvency in the aftermath of the um, construction of I-94. So, in the years in which I-94 was built and has been constructed and maintained to be an integral part of the Twin Cities landscape, the Rondo neighborhood fell into decline and disrepairs in the 70s throughout the 90s. Numerous individuals who were forcibly relocated during the construction of the interstate were forced outside the neighborhood, often into high-rise apartment structures or even further into the south of Rondo outside the city of St. Paul proper. The neighborhood's population declined by 61%, according to the census in 1970. Estimates of the loss of community wealth that might have already all otherwise been passed down from generation to generation ranged from $90 million to $157 million. 30 years ago, though, the Rondo Community Land Trust was formed.
1: The Rondo Community Land Trust is community-based, housing
0: model, and land trust operating in the Ron neighborhood of St. Paul. This task force recommended the land trust model and is a way to keep housing affordable for future generations. In neighborhoods like the Summit University neighborhood and the Hamlin community, both voted to endorse the creation of this type of land trust in St. Paul. The Rhonda community land trust was the first neighborhood-based community land trust in St. Paul. As of 1993, the Rondo Community Land Trust formed <laughs> as a nonprofit organization serving communities all across St. Paul. After 10 years in, in um, the Rondo neighborhood having great success, the land trusts expanded further into other St. Paul neighborhoods and even into the southeast suburbs of the metro. Not only does this organization provide affordable housing options, it also extends grants to small businesses in, per- in purchasing commercial land and opening small businesses. The Rondo Community Land Trust actually developed mixed use commercial res- and residential buildings. These buildings provide over 9000 square feet of long term affordable commercial space for minority owned businesses, along with over 30 units of, of senior housing located above the businesses on Selby Avenue in the Rondo neighborhood. Businesses participating in this grant include the Black Gate, a gallery and preservation institute showcasing and promoting art by Black artists in the Twin Cities metro. A coffee shop called Golden Time is also open there, featuring coffee drinks named after famous jazz artists. Finally, a shoe shop also is located on Selby Street, and this, this facility is owned by a third generation shoe whose grandfather o- opened and operated the shop in the, ro- shop in the Rondo before the interstate development in this this facility is called the DA shoeshine. Public transit concerns also spread significant controversy in the Rondo neighborhood. During the planning and preparation for the Green Line, um, the second main route on the light rail transit system of the Twin Cities, attention was focused onto the Rondo neighborhood and the historical implications of it. The Green Line was initially planned to travel along University Ave, following the route of I-94. Communities in the Rondo specifically were concerned about a repetition of past events, as the Green Line cut through the center of the community. And only one stop was provided in the Rondo. Community organizers, assisted by the NAACP, filed a lawsuit against the Minnesota Department of Transportation and the Federal Transit Administration, who helped fund the project. The aftermath of the lawsuit. In the aftermath of the lawsuit, three additional stops were added to better help the Rondo residents and provide them with the transportation that all Twin Cities residents deserve. In recent years, the Minnesota Department of Transportation finally acknowledged the infrastructural violence inflicted upon the Rondo neighborhood at their hand. In the summer of 2015, the Minnesota Department of Transportation Commissioner Charles Zell joined a group of community members and elected officials at a a healing ceremony in the heart of the Rondo community, located at the corner of Fisk Street and Concordia Avenue. Zell publicly acknowledged the past transportation policies and infrastructural violence that disrupted and dismantled the neighborhood and made a formal statement of, of apology to the community. This apology recognized that this process led to the destruction of a vibrant and thriving community. As a result, the Minnesota Department of Transportation formed and formally formally acknowledged the Rethinking I-94 project. Zell states, Rethinking I-94 as part of a promise to the Rondo community and all communities in the I-94 corridor to do better. In February of 2021, A land bridge of sorts would create a giant cap over I-94 in St. Paul. This land bridge would extend from several blocks between the Lexington Parkway and Dale Street. This lid would would span around 20 acres and would form new land over the freeway. And this land would stretch some 30, 30, pardon me, 3000 feet on um, all four sides. A member who has worked closely with this Land Institute um, the Urban Land Institute, um, which helps form, uh, has formed general concept plans, strategies and foresees the bridge of holding nearly 5,000 housing units um, and adding numerous um, commercial opportunities for, and uh, recreation and community spaces. This new plan has been sparked and created by a, native, or a neighborhood advocacy organization called the Reconnect Rondo. As a, and this was created as a plan to right any wrongs and try to, and try to overcome racial injustices of in the past through infrastructural violence. According to the Reconnect Rondo's website, a community land bridge in Rondo is the catalyst for doing today what should have been done in the first place. It is a powerful way to restore what was lost in the original 984 construction. So now I'm here interviewing a Twin Cities Metro resident. Her name, Her name is, is Christy, Christy Olson. Olson. And um, I just have some questions for her as a Twin Cities native to discuss the potential implications and maybe support or admins for this type of project. So Christy, if you would please introduce yourself.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Christy Olson. I am a senior at Gustavus Adolphus College working on this podcast with Avery, More Than Maps. Um, Thanks for having me, Avery.
0: Thank you for being willing to come on, Christy. I really appreciate it. So first, Christy, um, do you believe a project of this magnitude is likely to be passed? It's over 20 acres above i 94. It's um, a huge infrastructural marvel, to be completely honest.
1: Oh, gosh, I'm not quite sure i'm quite equipped to answer this question i did live in minneapolis for a couple of years um during my childhood but i moved to the suburbs and hadn't paid too much attention to planning um i'm not entirely sure how to answer that maybe you could give some more clarity Um, What you're looking for for there. there. Sorry.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, for sure. It's It's okay. Thank thank you. Um, So pretty much um, as of uh, um, the winter of this year, um, the uh, Reconnect Rondo project has brought forth this kind of idea to build um, a huge like land bridge or basically like a lid on top of I-94. Um, no price point has been given in the article I can, I've can i read, but this type of infrastructural project is completely unfounded, and I can't imagine what the price tag would be or um, who, which institutions would be willing to fund it. I can't really imagine any kind of, like, how people would react and, like, fear about, like, potential tax increases or um, – I'm just kind of curious to um, see what people in the Twin Cities – how they would react to um, such a newfound type of project being implemented in their backyards. And this thing is going to be apparently, according to the Reconnect Rondo project, it's supposed to be over 20 acres. So, that's really huge. That's like a cornfield.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine that the people of the Twin Cities area would be too happy with it. Um, Just going off of like what I have heard about um construction of neighborhoods and that kind of stuff within the Twin Cities area, even stuff like getting the sound barriers on the highway like used or made built from recycled materials. I know that caused like a huge uproar, and that wasn't even necessarily um a huge tax thing for the residents of the area so I know that when we're talking about these large types of constructions and how this is going to affect the landscape, people in urban cities, you know, that's their home and that is what is a city, essentially, is the people that are living there. So I would imagine that this would be a very complicated project to pass and lots of hesitation and I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, (laughs)
0: Awesome. Thank you. And I guess I just have one more question. Um, Do you think a project like this is kind of dramatic enough to right any past wrongs conducted by the Minnesota Department of Transportation? Um, Personally, when I was reading this, um, I mean, obviously you can't make up for the past, and the Minnesota Department of Transportation can't undo any wrongs that and any violence that their hands committed in the 1960s when constructing interstate 94 but personally i do believe a project of this scale and of this magnitude could potentially alter the landscape of st paul and really kind of showcase how the city is um kind of bringing forth new priorities uh do you kind of agree do you think um a project like this would, like, alter like the landscape of Saint Paul. Like, I mean, physically, it clearly would. There's this twenty acre lid over I ninety four, but um, do, I'm um, do you know? Can you do you think any um, like social implications? Do you think that would be kind of carried forward in the mental landscape of Saint Paul residents?
1: Oh, definitely. You know, we talk about how highways are used to make or break (laughs) urban areas and how, you know, open streets and open infrastructure has been able to create a source of um, community. And in terms of landscape, you know, that is embedded in there as well, how people are able to communicate with each other um, and how they're able to communicate with the space as well. So I definitely think that this would change the landscape, which may bring a lot of fear. Um, you know, whether this is these kinds of development projects, you know, typically get put in the backyards mentally and physically of the marginalized or the dispossessed. So, um, I would imagine that there could be some fear in that area. but yeah, overall, definitely.
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Christy, for um, willing to come on to today's episode. Um, be sure to listen to um, her sharing her research findings on adoptee, ge- adoptee geographies and the paucity of knowledge, data, and resources for young adoptees in the Midwest at Gustavus Adolphus College. Her um, episode will be out shortly, and I really look forward to hearing what she has to say. So, thank you, Christy. I really, really appreciate your insight, especially being someone who's not from the Twin Cities. I think it's kind of important to have like a local perspective. Um, I mean, I've visited the cities often, and I have friends and family who reside there, but I can't exactly call myself um, a Minneapolis resident or a Saint Paul resident. And I don't really understand, but it's like to be firsthand a member of that community. So that kind of connects to the limitations of. Um, my research. So, um, it's It's important for me to discuss my positionality as a researcher here, especially being one, not from the twin cities. I'm from a pretty small city in Southwest Wisconsin, um, which is pretty, um, it's pretty homogenous. I mean, like all cities, there is diversity, which should be accepted and welcomed, but it's nothing compared to the neighborhoods of the twin cities. Um, and, and that really is an important, important part of my positionality. I don't have a, outside of like a tourist, I don't have a place in the Rondo neighborhood. I, their trauma isn't something I can comprehend, nor is it something I can relate to, nor does it feel like it's anything I can ask anybody about. Um, sadly enough, um, any kind of documented evidence that I could access on it, um, I haven't really been able to access it to the degree I wish to due to um, restrictions of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um,
1: I haven't been able to access any
0: kind of archives at the Rondo Community Land Trust um, like I was hoping to, um, which is okay, but nor do I feel comfortable um, sitting down for interviews just for potential viral spread, especially being not from a community member. I, in good faith, could not do um, proper field research in the Rondo neighborhood, and if I were to do any type of field research, I'd want it to be in-depth and comprehensive, something which I could not do due to the given constraints. So um, even though I was not able to conduct proper field research like I was hoping to, um, I truly learned the importance of archival research for this project. Um, I used um, four pretty significant sources. Um, The Minnesota Historical Society proved to be one of the most useful sources for me. Um, Most of the photographs and maps I've used in my presentations and in the stations of my paper all have come from the Minnesota Historical Society's online archives. Um, Also, um, I found the census records, specifically um, the Ramsey County census records ranging from 1950 to 1980 to be extremely helpful as well. Also, I took great inspiration from the McAllister Colleges remembering the Rondo's history harvest. Um, I learned much about social organizations and kind of the social history of the Rondo neighborhood and what daily life was encompassed in the Rondo. And finally, um, the Pioneer Press and Star Tribune archives proved to be incredibly helpful as I investigated political capital and infrastructural developments and um, the processes and the um, kind of level of involvement of community organizations um in the neighborhoods within the twin cities and at the metro as a whole so finally i would like to um, discuss my future study um, as a planning student hopefully in kind of early stages of constructing my thesis for urban and regional planning um, I would like to use this um, research of the Rwinder neighborhood in St. Paul as one facet of an assessment of urban renewal across the entire i ninety four corridor in the upper Midwest. So in this, um, I plan on focusing primarily on urban renewal um, and the four sites I'd wish to investigate include um, the Twin Cities Metro, so St. Paul, Minneapolis, but I also find it necessary to look at processes of urban renewal in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in Chicago, and in Detroit, Michigan. Outside of urban renewal, I also think it's important to tell rural stories of infrastructural development. And so between these cities, it'd be it's going to be very interesting to learn of the processes of infrastructural um, construction and how they impacted rural communities as well. So altogether, that concludes this episode of More Than Maps. Um and thank you all for tuning in. And I'm hoping this infra- this um episode kind of shed some light on um, the infrastructure of the Twin Cities and helped you find the why of where